Hey, good morning or good afternoon to whoever is listening. Welcome back to another episode of Pariah Nation. And today we're going to be covering one of my personal favorite topics and something that every single African needs to be thinking about. Are we, have we inherited actually a, a colonial educational system? And what can we do to be able to decolonize our minds through decolonizing education? So I have two, as usual, very special guests. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Tell us a bit more about yourselves and where you're from and what you do, etc. Uh, my name is Rati. Um, I am a student at the University of Cape Town. I'm in my second year studying uh, philosophy, politics, and economics, and I'm from Zimbabwe and Botswana. So, yeah. Um, hi, and I'm Dineo. Um, I'm from Lesotho. I'm freshman at DePaul University in Indiana, and I plan to major in political science and governance. Yeah, wonderful. I'm so privileged to have you guys on here. And uh, I'm hoping that we'll get into a very productive discussion. And before this podcast starts, I just want to sort of segue into the first topic that we're going to talk about. But I want to let people know that Africa has a history of education. It does. Although different, it actually does. And for those who don't know, um, some of the first universities, actually the first university was started um, in Africa, and there's one that was actually also started uh, in Timbuktu, for example, in Sub-Saharan Africa as well. So we did have forms of writing. The University of Sankore currently has around 700,000 manuscripts. They offered subjects like law, astronomy, music, and uh, it was also partly a madrasa, so Islamic law is what they were learning there as well. And apparently the University of Sorbonne in France said that the math that they were doing at that period which is around the 1200s, 1300s, um, is equivalent to that the math, the math that they're teaching the second year students currently, and that is one of the best universities in Europe. So just to give you some sort of idea of what was going on during that period. So I think the first question I want to ask following on from that is, how have you guys been taught black history or African history in your schools? And how are you taught colonial history? Was it apologetic? Uh, I just want to know from you guys and we can be able to reflect on that together. Um, well, from my experience, it wasn't really apologetic. Um, I would say it was unbiased, maybe, because we were taught um, the real horrors of colonialism and we were taught the actual things that they did, but then we were also taught the the bad sides of our history and um, the wars that we fought or that we started as a country and the wars that we lost, honestly. I feel like my education system has been really good in the sense that it has it has shown and it has shown us both sides of history and let us know that yes, in as much as maybe colonialism may have brought sanitation, Christianity, civilization, there are also terrible things that it has brought to us and it has made us lose out on a lot of knowledge and information that we could have otherwise known had it not happened. Yeah, right, um, I think to echo on what Danielle was saying, um, I studied in two countries. So when I was young, I studied in Botswana. And when I was in high school, I studied in Zim. And I remember learning about black history. So I remember learning about, um, it's called Mfekane or Difakane, which was essentially like the movement of people across Southern Africa. So I remember learning about that and Botswana's history, pre-colonial, um, or like pre-British settlement. But what I do remember is that we didn't discuss a lot about colonialism when I was in primary school. But I remember when I was in high school, um, we did have conversations about like what ancient Zimbabwe had looked like, uh, the Rosary State and stuff like that. And I remember the day when we had the discussion on colonialism, um, our teacher was very, I don't want to say unbiased, but he sort of presented the information to us and wanted to see how we engaged in the conversation. And so I think um, a lot of the time, like what Dineo was saying is we're taught about it from a very blank slate. Like there isn't an opinion as to whether it was right or wrong. 
they always allowed us to formulate our own opinions but the thing is when you go to a private school which has lots of white kids and stuff how does that then like affect the conversation so um i can't really say too much about like whether or not the i don't think it was biased but i always wonder what the conversation would have looked like if we were truly allowed to express our opinions because i remember when the conversation did get heated our teacher sort of told us no you guys can't say this like keep quiet so i just yeah it was I, that's what i remember about the conversation is in the beginning they sort of allowed us to be like yeah it was bad or it was good but when we started getting to like the itty bitties um, our teacher was like anyway moving on and we're all like but you know so that's how i remember like learning about history at least no that's so powerful rati and i think for me i think i can be able to give that perspective of what would it look like to be taught about colonialism in a british system or basically majority white or at least part white school the answer is you don't get taught about it <laughs> and this being very point blank right now um i knew that colonialism existed i knew it happened i know that there was some obviously there was lots of violence that was used but for most of my life i've actually been to british system schools right so i think obviously i went to an eight four school for my first few years but since my primary school and like my high school i've been to gcse based schools and I think the main thing that I've been able to just see from that is like it was heavily academically focused and nowhere even, they didn't even teach Swahili, which is something that I found very, very odd. And that's one of the main reasons actually why I was, like for example, my proficiency in Swahili actually began to dip, right? And I think for me, when I look at it now, actually, like there was almost nothing that was covered in terms of black history. We, we just focused on, things like, oh, you know, World War II, Hitler, all this different stuff. And I think, yeah, obviously it's valuable to learn those things, but I, I picked up on something that Dineo said, like she said, um, the colonizers, I think they brought some aspect of uh, civilization. But I think what education does is by leaving that gap and not teaching us about great civilizations, predating colonialism, you leave people to wonder and let the media take over and teach you that Africa, or oh, we just lived in mud huts. I've debunked this claim several times on my channel, and we've discussed this. There's the great Zimbabwe, you know, um, that whole civilization where they were building in stone, not mud huts, per se. And the same thing for Kilwakisiwani, Mombasa, um, Mupungubwe, where they have that rhino, which is golden, etc. We, we should have been learning about Mali and how that was one of the greatest, if not the richest state in the 14th century. I think learning about these things just wasn't really present. And even when I talked to some of my friends that went through the A4 system, they did learn about these things, but they're still learning from the stuff that I'm being able to present, which is basically about black civilizations predating that. So, I mean, moving on from that, I just want to know from you guys, like when you came out of school, right? Uh, did you actually, what were your first perceptions about Africa pre-colonially? Like what were, what were your conceptions? Were they bad conceptions? Like, oh, we probably lived in mud huts or did you guys have to actually study for yourselves to find out the truth? Um, for, in my case, um, I totally agree with you that um, in, in the way we were taught and the way colonialism was um, presented, it sort of left that blank slate as to whether or not Africa was developing or even existed before colonialism. And um, so it just, it just gave us that impression that, oh no, we never had anything before they came. So they came with the good stuff. They came with the education. They came with the language. They came with everything. Um, but fortunately for me, um, my education system in Lesotho also kind of covered, um, you know, the, I'd say the traditional ruling system of our kingdom. So as Rati said, um, when we were learning about the Difakani wars and everything, we were taught about the different ruling strategies of kings in Southern Africa and which ones were efficient and which ones weren't. Um, so we kind of formulated our own opinions as to whether or not the decisions that our kings took were right or wrong. So we knew that even before the white people came, there, there were people who existed in 
I would say Southern Africa because that's where I come from. And this is what they were, they were doing. And this is how they were learning. And from that, you could sort of formulate that you could like, you could get from that, that, okay, this, I like the way that this chief ruled. So for example, um, he used to incorporate a lot of refugees. So during the Difakani Wars, um, people were fleeing from different countries, um, you know, because there were wars. And our king, King Mushoshere I, um, he used to incorporate a lot of refugees and cannibals and give them land and cows, you know. So that kind of made sure that everyone was wealthy enough to live and have land to farm. And so there wasn't poverty. So you, that kind of community building shows that, you know, even though we weren't educated about um you know, different governing systems, we still had a way of governing people and making it work. And then when I went to ALA, I learned more about like different, um, you know, African countries and how they worked and the different universities, the ones you were mentioning, Timbuktu, the different empires and um, kingdoms that existed in Africa in total and how they ruled and how they still had so much power and you know, like I just learned more about other parts of Africa that I didn't know about. Um, so I'd say that the different schools that I've been through have kind of done a good job in letting me know about my culture and my history um, without having to do um, too much of um, independent study. Mm. Yeah, those are good points, you. I think, I, I mean, just reflecting off of that, I mean, what are the implications of that? Let's first of all ask that question. Because as an African, for example, going through the normal educational system, and what I've heard, right, obviously, um, for example, let's say they don't really touch on these things as much. They just touch on history like, oh, this happened. But that seems pretty much in depth. The fact that you went into depth in, like, in terms of studying the governance that was happening um, from certain kings, right? I mean, things like capitalism and you know, these large ideas like democracy are always taught to be things that are inherent in a system, but you're kind of eased into that educational system. And I'd argue that the educational system is part and parcel of a capitalist system, right? Where you have to get a degree in order to get a job and that job will be able to secure you some form of funds to be able to fund your life, right? But now learning from that sort of example, for example, right, it sort of tells you that there was a different way of doing things on the continent and it allows you to critically analyze all of these different things, you know? Although like, yeah, the national educational system does need some work, uh, but I just wanna like take that one good thing from it and also perhaps like just sort of expand on that. Rati, is there anything that you'd like to say? Uh, when uh, Dineo was talking about King Mushoshe, like literally like light bulbs went up in my brain because I remember being in grade five and like learning outside and like us talking about those things and doing plays and stuff. So um, I think obviously to echo what Dineo was saying, I think um, schools, I can't say for all schools, but I think schools in Botswana and I think the Sotho generally try to do well in terms of teaching history like prior to pre-colonial times um but i also do i am i remember in zim in my first two years because we only started preparing for igcses in form three which is grade 10 i think i think it's probably grade 10 or 11 or year 11 because i'm not sure the systems the grading is different depending on where you're going but i remember the first two years when i first got to high school we spent a lot of time discussing like um pre-colonial Zimbabwe, like what movements and spreading out and what it looked like and the governance and stuff like that. But I also remember that it was like, we never went into too much depth in Zimbabwe. I remember just like, so I know, yeah, there was King Lopengula and then there was this, and then like, like yeah, there was the Rajri state and this, this, this. Um, but it's just, I think sometimes it tends to be very shallow, but obviously that is always left in the question of the different education systems you're in and also what capacity it has. So if I was to compare my education, from a private from a british school as compared to someone who went to a national system the gaps in terms of how much knowledge we have so i remember my cousin did history 
in like the Zim system and she seemed to know a lot more about like history in Zimbabwe. And so I think obviously sometimes um, a big question, or I think something we need to think a little bit about is what does it look like? Like if you're in a private, if you're in a foreign um, learning system, what responsibility or like what does it look like for them to teach you history about your own country? Should there be measures put in place for foreign systems to ensure that students still do learn about their history? But I think obviously the implications for that is it leaves a lot of us with gaps or assuming that there's only one way to do things. Whereas when you then go and you learn like African studies at ALA or you study African studies, you realize when you're like, oh, so there's ways we could do like X, Y, and Z. Like how do we, like the implication I think for the biggest problem is it assumes that there's one way to do things, which isn't the case. Like um, I think we need to be in a place where we open up the table to a lot more options about how to do things in the world. Like we're not saying pre-colonial Africa was perfect, but I'm sure the lessons we can learn from it, just like how the lessons we can learn from democracy or socialism or communism, I think at the end of the day, the implication is that it assumes there's a standard or there's like one thing. And that's the problem is it's one, but we all know, it's the, the current standard is failing us. Like it's failing all of us, you know? And so at the end of the day, we need to open up the table as people always say, like open up the table and try find a way to incorporate new ideas and new things we can learn and how it can help us shape what the future looks like, not only for Africa, but for the rest of the world. I, I totally agree with you. And I think when, when you mentioned about we can learn something from every single system, that really hit deep with me because my question is, right, and people often don't think about this, but um, this podcast is mainly for people who are really going to think deep about the foundation level. These are subtle things. You might not be able to spot them, but the effect that they have is immense. Colonial education, for example, tells you that, for example, the common law system from England or be it France is the best system to govern your country. My question is why? It tells you something like democracy and specifically like, you know, parliamentary democracy for those Anglophone countries is the best solution to your country's problem. My question is why? It says that, for example, using English or French as the main mode of communication in your country is increasingly favorable, even in legal documentation. My question is why? And that's, that's what the, I mean, like, decolonizing education in my mind actually begins to look like. Because for me, you start to actually critically analyze what colonialism brought and you match that with the modern day standard of, you know, or modern day, um, let's say uh, the modern day current affairs that you're seeing in Africa. And like you just basically cater solutions for that. You should not be using colonialism as the standard for, you know, answering all our problems. And now that actually brings me to my next point, indigenous knowledge. I feel like the educational system has portrayed Africa as, or like African knowledge in the pre-colonial period as intellectually inferior. And I, I want to know, first of all, what you guys think, what, what came out of your educational institutions. But I mean, for me, obviously not being able to study pre-colonial Africa in most schools anyways, I generally thought that European forms of thinking was superior to African forms of thinking. And obviously, after studying pre-colonial history in my own time, I found out that that was actually a misguided sort of conclusion. So I want to hear from you guys. What, what, what did your educational systems implicitly teach you about um, indigenous knowledge? Did it place it under European knowledge and other world, like you know, knowledge from other places in the world? Or did it elevate it? Or did it just say it was the same more or less? Yeah, no, I agree. It literally placed it as inferior. Um, you could, it's evident in the way in which you, our languages were labeled as vernacular and you weren't allowed to speak them in school. So um, I remember you mentioned something about prefects. So prefects were elected to police basically everyone at school. And if you were caught speaking your own language, a language that you speak in your house and a language that's spoken everywhere 
in the country, but you were caught speaking it in school, you would either have to carry around a red card the whole day, or you know, I hear in some schools you had to like wear a sack where that's that basically said you were stupid, um, only for speaking your own language, and that that reinforced the notion that our languages are inferior and that um anything that that is that is from us isn't good enough you know any it basically said whatever indigenous knowledge that we're taught from home that our grandparents knew um you know like the stories that were passed that were passed down to us they weren't good enough because weren't seen as knowledgeable they like it wasn't seen as knowledge um if you were to tell a story, if you're supposed to tell a story in English and maybe you translated from your own language to English, it would be seen as fiction, as something that didn't exist, as though fiction isn't something that's already there in the English language for some of us who are like, you know, British colonies. So yeah, like our, our education systems really failed us in that regard because as much as I'd say in my case, Sisutu and English were... Um, national languages, they still don't carry the same weight. Even now, most people in my country prefer to learn or speak English over Sisutu because the, you know, the, the idea is, where is Sisutu going to take me? Um, where am I going to go with this language? Uh, uh, the people say, at least if I can speak English, then, you know, I can go further in life rather than if I speak my own language and know you know, the secrets of my nation and everything. It, it really, I would say it reduced in, um, nationalism and, you know, people's pride in their own country. Because if from primary school, you're always told that your language is wrong, it's bad, then you end up thinking that, you know, even my country in general is bad because how can anything good come from this country that speaks this language that is wrong? So um, I just thought about, um, so last semester I had an intro to philosophy course and they tried to teach us a bit more about like African scholars and African people who've written like African philosophy and stuff. And there's this one author, his name is Oyoe, I think he's from Nigeria. And in one of his papers, he talks about how the biggest problem or the absence of indigenous knowledge came with essentially the eradication of African languages. And I think he goes into a bit more detail and he explains how, because like the British people, like Europeans for them, knowledge was carried in writing. So stories and stuff like that. Whereas in Africa, I think our indigenous knowledge was always held in stories. And I remember growing up and listening to my grandmother tell me stories all the time, but they were always just like entertainment. But when I think about it now, they carried a lot of knowledge, but just because of the absence, I think, of language and of us being taught the importance of speaking like Sotho or Setswana or Swahili or Yoruba, what happens is that indigenous knowledge isn't able to be carried forward. And so, um, I remember that when I was in Form 3, I had to do Zulu, and that was the first time I got to engage in, like, reading stories in Debele or reading stories, um, yeah, reading stories in Debele, writing essays, and sort of critically discussing what those conversations looked like. And that was the only time I would say I learned about Indigenous knowledge. I learned about what it looks like in its true nature and in its true form, whereas I think um, and I think obviously a lot of this also goes back to the system I was in. So I was in a British system. So even then they taught us that, oh, you only have to learn it as a sec second language. You don't have to learn it as a first language. But um, I think for me, my experiences with indigenous knowledge, when I chose to be in places where indigenous knowledge was available. So where I would do Zulu or I would do um, African studies, um, I would always find that it was very present. But I think sometimes indigenous knowledge, we should, I think, increasingly begin to think about it, not only in terms of what's written down, but it's about the stories and about the morals and the principles we're taught all around us. And if so, does it mean that we have indigenous knowledge all around us? Um, and how do we then begin to 
make it in a manner that's increasingly accessible to everyone? Does it mean we have a lot more books? Do we require schools to make sure that like everyone has to learn Swahili or Ndebele to a certain degree? Because I know the other thing is in Zim, if you go to a private school, um, there's like a primary school examination and you people, students do like five subjects. And so the highest grade is like one. So if you've done really well, you've gotten like one, 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 like you have five ones. But in private schools, they say you can get ones in all the other subjects. But even if you get a nine in the indigenous knowledge in like Shona, we don't care. We'll still take you in. So it's about the fact that we've made it seem like whether you pass or you fail your language doesn't matter. But if indigenous knowledge is carried in the language, how does that then affect the 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 level of indigenous knowledge or how you then even learn that indigenous knowledge in this new place you're in? I don't know if what I'm saying makes sense. Yeah, no, those are so many deep points. And I think I'm just going to go off and mention three specific things. Um, one form of an eradication or a humiliation of some form of indigenous knowledge, because I know there's a practice in Senegal and different countries where they classify people as illiterate because they can't write in French. However, there has been something that has existed for the longest time called Ajami script. And this is basically where people are using the Arabic language uh, post-Timbuktu era, and it, I think pre-Timbuktu era as well, right, during the Malian Empire. They used it to record their local languages, and it's been used to even record languages like Afrikaans and even languages like Swahili, for example. And I think for me, that just proves that obviously, you know, we, 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 we value the colonizers' language more than we value, for example, um, you writing a Jami script. It doesn't make sense. Like literacy is based on can someone read and write? And obviously the language that they'll be able to read and write, there are even some political posters that are written in a Jami script. So if people are able to live in that sort of environment and understand those letters and be able to speak their languages using a Jami script, why is it not considered being literate? Stuff like small things like this have such large impact. And also I want to talk a bit more about stories, right? And I don't mean to offend any religious people here as well, because I'm also religious, right? But I want us to just sort of step back, right? Um, for example, right, we take things like, um, yeah, we have Abrahamic religions, obviously. And you hear stories of something like Moses, peace be upon him, splitting the Red Sea, right? And yeah, I mean, it's totally fine. People don't have to believe in that. They can believe it's all fake, whatever, right? But even, for example, even some religious people uh, that are subscribed to Abrahamic faiths will look at stories from indigenous religion where I think there's one story like in, I think in a West African culture where they believe that that town was founded and they cut off the head of one person and it grew back seven times, right? So my question is, right, if you can hold those beliefs, for example, that a person with God's power can be able to split the sea, why won't you respect someone who is an indigenous African believer? Why will you ridicule it, for example, for containing similar stories that are of like that have a similar miraculous effect, right? Why would you be able to just like humiliate someone or even just look down upon that view when you actually have the same view, right? So that's one thing that a very interesting uh, sort of hypocrisy that I've, I've viewed from some, not all, um, religious people, especially when we're discussing things like African, um, you know, sort of religion. And sometimes people even just go to, go to say that it's witchcraft and all that different stuff, right? But obviously I think- yeah. That there needs to be some sort of acknowledgement of these beliefs and respect for them. You don't have to subscribe to them, but you shouldn't also be just looking down on them as if they're like primitive and anyone who subscribes to those things is like, for example, dumb. And one last thing I will talk about, right, is that we've, we've also looked down at indigenous processes to be able to achieve something like, let's say, it's actually indigenous technology. I'm just going to say that, right? So we know for a fact that the first mine in the world they were mining iron ore, I think since 43,000 years ago, is the Gwenya mine, for example. I think it's in Eswatini. Uh, you'll have to correct me, Dine, if I'm wrong. But the Gwenya mine is essentially the first mine in the world. And a lot of these first, first things, like the Ishango bone, the, one of the oldest mathematical tools, the Nembombo bone, another old mathematical tool, all of these things came from the African continent, yet I, I don't really see us learning about them. We always think that, okay, complex um, you know, thought began in, and started either in Egypt 
and it moved on to the Greeks and then everything from there was from Europe onwards. Why do we have to question that? And one pure example of why I actually doubted my own indigenous knowledge was when I was on the Swahili coast in a place called Lamu. The main uh, form of transportation there's either walking or donkey. So I took a donkey and we're riding this donkey and we're riding it through some bushes, right? And obviously I was really bad at like directing the donkey. And when I, when I started pushing, pushing it to one side, it would go to the opposite side. And eventually it took me into a bush full of thorns. So here Adnan is um, around maybe five, six kilometers um, away from the nearest hospital and I'm bleeding from my foot. And I'm like, okay, I'm done. There's nothing I can do. I just have to like, you know, just feel the pain and whatever. But one of my, one of the people who was guiding us through the forest said, oh no, don't worry, I've got you. And I looked at him funny. He went to a certain branch, he broke it in half and it had some gel. And he put the gel on my foot and within five minutes, it had actually stopped bleeding. And I did not suffer any infections. So my question, like even those small herbal remedies, it's like, I don't know why that amazed me. The fact that that amazed me showed that obviously, you, know, you, you automatically assume that anything that comes from the West is the best and African sort of thought, all this different stuff doesn't really matter. So, I mean, Dineo, you wanted to add something onto that, I believe? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to say, I think, um, basically to answer like um, the three points that you've just raised, you've just raised, um, it comes with like our power, basically, our intersection with power and like power dynamics in the world, you know? So um, going back to um, the questions that you also mentioned in, in the beginning about how, why we, we may think that... Um, everything that um, basically comes from the West is right and why we have to accept that. I think, and why we just have to go with, oh, if you learn English, then you're good enough. And if you, if you don't know your indigenous languages, then it's still fine. I think it's because the way, the systems of power are created in such a way that they have put us in an inferior place and they've basically ingrained in us that um, everything that comes from our side we, like we didn't have anything and therefore we didn't know anything we knowledge and learning and life basically started with them finding us in quotes so it 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 basically like erased it's like the erasure of african existence before columbus it's the erasure of african indigenous knowledge before they came the erasure of our educational systems our medicinal herbs the way we are called people who know herbs and, you know, have spirits and, um, you know, can speak to a higher power are called sangomas and it's witchcraft and everything. But when it comes from white people, then it's, you no, know, it's prophecy and they are said, they are the ones sent from above. It's like, it's all that. It's just power dynamics. It's just who is in power. And because they are the ones in power and they are the ones who say we are right. So it therefore makes us, be in the wrong as though we can't coexist and the two forms of life or the if the different religions can coexist in this world i don't understand why people different people can't coexist in the world and that's where the concept of race came from you know that they have to be the superior race and because they found us you know then you know they are they are therefore smarter as if um People, like Africans had not gone to South America, they had not gone to other parts of the world, you know, just because we didn't decide that we are superior and therefore we want to rule the world. Now we have been placed in an inferior position and now we have to pay for that for the rest of our lives. So everything is just how we interact with power, I'd say. You, I totally agree with you. And I think it'll take us into the next sort of section quite well, because I feel like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's quite sad, to be honest, the fact that I have to learn about, I mean, like oral history and oral tradition also was heavily disrupted. Um, if I want to learn about the stories of the founding of the Hausa people, you need to really look either online or you need to go into a YouTube channel. But some people, even let's say your grandparents might not even know the stories anymore because they went through a colonial education and they never got the opportunity to learn these stories, right? And I think you touched on a very, very good point, even something about like the Sangomas and all that stuff. Actually, yeah, let's talk about that, right? Spirituality and all this different stuff. 
how it's been whitewashed, for example. Like if a white person, for example, is talking about, oh, manifesting, and they're talking about, oh, you know, um, I'm going to, if you see 11, 11 on the clock. You know? And, like, you see what I'm saying? And this is something that literally came like in the last few months or something. Oh, I'm going to manifest this into my life. But then now when people go to a Sangoma in South Africa, it's always witchcraft. Oh, look at these Africans, you know, all this. I mean, my question is why, why do people still have these implicit biases in place? Like, why does that exist? Like, I feel like we need to respect these beliefs equally. And Rati, I think you had wanted to add something onto that. Yeah, so the one thing is, my friend and I were talking about this some time back, is I think a lot of these biases also come from the way things are presented. You know, like, when you see, like, a picture of a Sangoma, it's, like, the most. It's, like, they have, like... Obviously, there's some people who do that and they dress that way. But I've also met a lot of people who practice, um, like, African, I don't know whether to say spirituality or African traditional religion. We just, like, they wear jeans and a t-shirt. And it's like, I think sometimes those biases come just from trying to present something in a very, like, comical way but the thing is in doing that you make it seem like oh you know like we're better than them no stop like no like you don't need to do that you know i think um i think a lot of the biases come from the way we've presented things so it's like the same way people tend to look at black people and think we're inferior to them because i don't know we like making noise no we just like talking like if you don't talk that's not our problem. We like no. talking, you know? So I think some of it, like a lot of these biases come from the way we've presented things. They come from how we've made something that's not like ours seem comical or clowny. But then what happens is then like white people will start telling you about manifesting and this and you're like, but <laughs> we've been having this conversation forever, you know? So I think a lot of it is just like what Janelle was saying is there are a lot of power dynamics and presentation where they'll take it and they'll say, you guys don't know how to do it properly, so we're gonna show you. No, like, just give credit where it's due, you know? Um, but I think the other thing I just wanted to say is I think other than power dynamics, I think one thing that has sort of affected um, not only Africans' ability to speak, but Africans' ability to own and sort of own the narrative about things that's from Africa is, the colonial legacy. I was reading this um, article by, well, I had to do it for school, and it was by Dr. Karen Smith, and she talks about African contributions to IR, but she makes an interesting point about the fact that when colonialism happened, what happened is it sort of allowed um, what, like, it's like African were made to believe subconsciously that we need someone to speak for us like we can't talk for ourselves anymore and you can see that that's essentially defined the narrative so we allow indigenous knowledge to be shaped by curriculum and not by like elders and stuff in society and so even I think like I learned about um like oral healing and traditional healing. I remember learning about it and my granddad has diabetes and he has gout, but I remember knowing about this herb that we used to give him and it would help. And I grew up with like, when I used to like, I used to have a lot of gas when I was young and my mom used to add like this powder to my porridge and I used to eat it and I'd be fine. So I grew up in an environment where I used antibiotics, but like I also used to eat like tree bark because I understood the nutritional value of like all those things but I think at the end of the day what it goes back to is I think so often we allow those things to only be shaped by essentially someone else I think this is a conversation I've had so many times is and I'm always telling my friends that you need to have the entitlement of a white man like talk the way they do because when you do that you are able to own and to be in a place presently and I think it's not just about like the biases and the power dynamics but it's the fact that we were taught we can't speak for ourselves and now we're in a place and in a season where we need to learn how to re how to shape things the way we want to to be like no what do people are saying stupid like no you know so i think sometimes that's something we need to think about is just um i think the biggest problem comes from how power 
essentially made Africans believe someone else always has to speak for us. And when someone else does it, it can be comical. You know, like they can either mock you or feel like you're inferior or whatever. So I think a lot like moving forward is about how do we own our voices moving forward? How do we speak for ourselves? How do we, how do we own it and say, this is it, you know? Um, yeah. Oh, wait. So can I add on to that? Um, so um, just to, so I agree and disagree with what you said. Um, to agree um, on the fact that we, because we've been spoken for for such a long time, sometimes um, that comes in, like into the issue of language and how um, certain words in our African indigenous languages cannot be translated into English. So most meanings and most things were lost in translation, you know. So when somebody is speaking for you, and maybe you're telling a story or you're telling the, the history of something, um, whoever is speaking for you sometimes, and especially back then, wouldn't know the word for certain things. So um, I'd say English kind of dilutes the meaning of what you want to say sometimes. So I think that's how we also kind of lost everything that we may have wanted to say. But then also to maybe disagree or challenge or pose a different view, um, is I wanted to raise the issue of secrecy. So in my tradition, I know that we're not allowed to ask questions. So they'll be, they'll be telling you, girls are not allowed to stand on doors. Girls are not allowed to eat standing. Girls are not allowed to do this. Girls are not allowed to do that. And you'll ask why. And then they'll tell you, no, in our culture, you don't ask why. So most things were lost during that time because because now if I ask my mom, why are we not allowed to eat standing? She'll say she doesn't know she was taught. So now she's been passing down this thing that probably doesn't apply to us now because they were never given explanation because, you know, we weren't allowed to ask. So in, to, in relation to the Sangomas and everything, I think we kind of look at them in a, in a different light because everything is just silent about them. We're not taught the real, the, the real reasons and the history as to why they exist and how they come to exist. You know, you're just told that, oh, they were called by the spirits. You don't understand, well, who are these spirits? Where do they come from? What, how do they manifest? And then, so, and Sangomas um, sometimes come in different ways. Some people, they'll tell you, oh, they worship snakes. But in most cases, you'll find that, no, these people are actually healers and people who can help societies um, evade a certain catastrophe or something but because there's so much mystery towards them and as to how they happen that we never get to learn sometimes you find that maybe say me I'm called into this into this life but I don't know how to express it and therefore um, I'll face a lot of problems a lot of um, tragedies in my life because I'm not able to express what exactly is going on to me or happening to me because I wasn't taught and I don't know how to explain what is happening and I don't even know people who had similar experiences but if these things were demystified and we were told how they happen and why they aren't bad so most people think African spirituality is bad when in actual fact it isn't um, but because we aren't really told how it happens. Most people think it's demonic. I remember I read a book. It's called um, Chintu from Uganda. Um, I forgot who's the author. Um, but it basically talks about mental health and how it was hereditary in a certain family in Uganda. Um, and how back then they thought it was um, a spirit haunting them. So because we didn't have the correct words to explain what was happening, they thought that um, an occurrence of mental health illnesses what was spirits but at the same time I personally believed that it was actually spirits because in our African traditional systems we actually have spirits that visit families that help people but because now is what it was being interpreted by different people there's like different ways in which you can view one certain thing so I think it comes back into the issue of language we've had um, a history of maybe mental illnesses happening in Africa, but because we didn't have the correct words to explain what was happening, we either thought people were being bewitched or, you know, so that's why um, mental health still has like a lot of stigma in Africa because when you explain to your parents, oh, I have, um, you know, anxiety, they're like, oh, those are white people's sicknesses, you know, because <laughs> it's just newly found words basically, but these things have been happening throughout time.
You, yeah. you bring up such a good point. Um, I think I'll ask a very controversial question in a few, right, in relation to certain traditional practices that some people, and I think someone in my comment section, actually under one of my videos said, that's one of the good things that colonialism got rid of, right? But I want to first talk about, uh, and, and Rati's looking at me weirdly, you, you'll find out, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. But I want to <laughs> sort of like take a step back. I think you, you mentioned something about like, don't ask, right? But also realize, and I just want to play devil's advocate here with what Denise said, we've been kind of also given those colonial presuppositions that we don't quite ask questions about. Why, what is the point of cutlery? for example, with certain types of food, right? No, really, like, and someone might be like, oh, it's disgusting. Why is it disgusting, right? If you're going to wash your hands, right? If you're going to wash your hands and you're going to eat food, and let's say even afterwards, you're just going to wipe your hands and also going to wash your hands. What is the problem with eating with your hands? This is one thing, even me, I don't know why I have this sort of perception, but I always have this instinct to go for a fork and knife or a spoon when I'm eating somewhere. But my question is also those sort of practices, even not just sitting on like a chair and a table, what is the, why not just sit on a mat, for example? I know in Swahili culture, during the weddings, yeah, what is the point of having, for example, an, an individual plate, right? Um, all these things have kind of disrupted our culture because even when I go for Swahili weddings at the coast, we sit around one big plate and we eat with our hands. The sauces are there, the meat is also there. Right? And from there, we sit on a mat. Right? So my, 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 my point is that there's certain cultural things that we've also been presupposed to actually believe in. And I think it's also quite good to actually question those things. Like even in court, and I know I'm going to, I'm, I might end up being a lawyer one day, but for me, I don't really care too much about it because like, why, what is the point of those you know, whips? What is the Afri where is the Africanity in that? What is the significance of that, those roads? And like, I think for me, it's one of those colonial relics that people still take pride in and I don't necessarily follow. Now, I want to also mention two other things or two other points, right? And some people in my podcast, or if you watch my TikToks, you probably already know about this. <clears throat> but in Uganda, in uh, the Banyoro people, in around 1870s, something like that, one Scottish doctor <clears throat> came to see how childbirth was essentially being handled. <clears throat> and what we actually find is that these Banyoro people were doing C-sections. They were not too complex, obviously. But even keep in mind at that time, the, the, the mortality rate when you'd have a C-section was incredibly high in Europe still. My question is, is what would have happened if we actually left all of these things alone, right? And um, we, we allowed them to progress. What, what would Banyoro surgery look like today had it been left alone, not interfered with? That's my main question, right? I'm starting to actually extrapolate now. Another example the Malian Empire, they had their own form of couching to deal with cataract surgery, and this was in the 1200s. And for me, it's just like, you know, the fact that people think that Africans didn't know how to deal with these things, for me, is a bit, it's a bit of a problem, for example. It's like, what would have happened if we actually like, advanced these sort of things? Our medicine would look different, but it may not have been wrong, per se, right? For example, you might see that mental health as a spirit, but if the treatment by the way, if the treatment gets rid of the, the sort of spirit, does it really matter what you term it? That's my question. But I do agree on the flip side, and now I'm going to ask the controversial question. There are obviously some things that were misunderstood, like, as in any civilization, right? Um, there, there are some things about, misunderstood about things like mental health, like depression, etc. Now, my question, obviously, it's a bit of a controversial one. It's going to come to the idea of FGM, right? So there are some, obviously, some cultures that still practice FGM till today. Um, and obviously, I feel like you guys as women are more placed on the topic, talk about it than me. But um, what is your opinion on how, for example, colonialism did away with such practices? And also, do you think Africans would have done away with those practices had colonialism not happened? What do you guys think? Um, so for me, I, I don't know, I feel like I have like a mixed um, opinion on this issue because it's cultural and it's also, you know, personal. Um, I feel like personally, it's like a, you know, a violation of our bodies and everything. And, you know, people shouldn't have to go through that. I feel like it's oppression on women, you know. Um, 
but also I remember I watched a documentary about it where, um, you know, women who have actually gone through it were interviewed and they were asked their opinions about it. And they said, you know, we feel fine. We don't feel violated. Yes, we were too young when we were, we were forced to do it. But at the same time, even if I was asked to do it now, I would still do it because it's our culture and we are proud of our culture and we, we stand by our culture and, you know, personally you know when we hear the reasoning behind it you know it's supposed to stop the girls from like you know engaging in sexual intercourse before a certain age and all of that and in the like you know liberal age that we live in we i personally don't agree with that but you know i feel like certain societies had certain reasons that i don't necessarily agree with but i feel like there's still reasons enough for people to be allowed to be given you know, the opportunity. If somebody says, I am, you know, 28 years old and I want to do this, then please, by all means, let them go through it, you know? So I feel like maybe um, I, what I would say around the whole FGM thing is maybe increasing the age limit, you know, giving people enough chance for them to know the good and the bad sides of it. And then allowing them to make the decisions when they've seen or they know what they want. But at the same time, that defeats the papers because, you know, it's supposed to stop them from doing something that they may have already done by then. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, Rati, would you like to add something to that? Okay, so I don't know how, what's going to come out of my mouth. It's just going to go. But, um, so I think the first thing I wanted to note is, and I think this um, is, I think a bigger conversation for us to have is when you look at some of the discussions that have been going on around Black is King and how there was a huge conversation on Twitter about how we, I'm saying it's bad, but sometimes it's problematic for us to paint and believe that Africa was like that, like all of us were like kings and queens, you know? And I think the same thing sometimes happens with culture, is I think sometimes when we think about culture, we think, oh, everything is sunshine and roses, like, but there are, I think, certain things in culture that can be oppressive of women, that can be oppressive of men, that can be violating of human rights. And I think those are things we need to acknowledge and to sort of understand. But I think at the end of the day, what's, I think like what Danelle was saying is I think an important thing is for us to get to a point where we understand that how do we allow culture to evolve? I was watching, uh, like it was like a short BBC extract by Shoma Dozi, and she was talking about how we need to stop trying to frame African culture in one way. She was talking about fashion and how she believes that she like she still embraces all of her Tonga elements, but she's making it for her. And I think obviously that becomes a question about like, do we all make culture for ourselves? What what like it's a bigger conversation. But I think it's also about saying in the same way that language and food and tradition and everything has evolved, we also need to allow culture to evolve. And as we allow culture to evolve, we need to begin to become increasingly aware about like, this was misogynistic or this enforced patriarchy or this whole idea of us not asking things is problematic. We need to understand yes. why we do things. We need to understand, like people need to be able to make choices. Um, and the reason I say that is because um, I think we like, the one i'm not saying asia has been perfect at being able to maintain or preserve their culture but when you go to like china and india and singapore you can see that their culture they authentically own being indian or being chinese like it's there whereas with us i think colonization that was the biggest thing is it erased everything and we started from zero and so now we're really trying to figure everything out but even in those places there's some practices that are still oppressive of women i don't know if you guys have heard but i remember some time back i worked at amnesty and we were doing research into a practice in india where they sew up girls vaginas and it's and it's believed that it's meant to protect them or to stop them from having sex so i think when we think about that we think about fgm in a way is something like like it's not is something like that but the rationale behind it was oppressive. The rationale behind it was, um, and 
like it was not only oppressive, but I remember watching a documentary and it was looking at the statistics of the number of girls who die from FGM and it was really high. Or you look at practices like breast ironing in, in Cameroon and in parts of West Africa where they use hot stones to stop girls' breasts from growing at the natural rate. And so I think sometimes an important thing is we need to think a little bit about what element like not to say we take out all the good or we take out all the bad in culture but we need to allow culture increasingly to protect people because the reason we care so much about culture is it protects our heritage it allows us to be who we are but even when we think about that um what does it mean like what elements of culture do we need to discuss like female like fgm does it mean that it needs to be done in environments where girls have access to the necessary health care they need um like the raises because the huge problem was also the spread of hiv and aids through fgm because they were using like one razor and stuff like that so i think sometimes it's about thinking if this is something we want to keep why are we keeping it um do we give people the choice to make decisions about how to do it? And even as we're keeping it, how do we make it safer or healthier? And I can't say too much about, I know the closer, like there's the whole manhood thing. And there've been lots of conversations about how it's sort of developed over time. And I think it's the same thing as we can think about how do we allow it to develop? How do we allow it to for culture not to be oppressive. I don't think culture has to be oppressive by any means whatsoever, but even, so if we're going to keep certain things, how do we make sure that it's done out of choice? Because people are proud of their culture, but we also protect them. Um, yeah, so I, I don't, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're asking, you're asking very, very good questions. And I think for me, one of those things that I see that has survived, let's look at the reasoning why it has survived because they're overlappings with things like Abrahamic religion. Something like male circumcision. We know that it happens in the Maasai tribes. And for people, actually, the, tra the tradition is actually that you put milk on the person. In the and if, by the way, if there are any Maasai and I've, I've messed up, just please correct me in Instagram or anything. Just DM me and let me know. But I'm just working from memory. But the main actual traditional practice was that um, you're supposed to test your strength as a man and um, they would pour milk on your face and like if you allow the milk to actually like pour or like you know to, to drop off of your body out of the pain then you would not be classified as someone that's like much of a man right but as we can see that people have sort of modernized this sort of culture and i remember uh there's some some Maasai still today in kenya uh, and different places where they actually do it through the hospital right and it's something that's seen as allowed right um, even though sometimes people really debate sort of the medical stuff, um, like whether it's actually medically significant, et cetera. Some people are even thinking of suing their parents when they're older for making them go through such a procedure, but that's, that's a topic for another day. And I think um, just because of time, um, I think we just need to obviously realize how, how many perceptions we've been able to inherit from colonialism in general. And like the fact that we've inherited certain presuppositions that make absolutely no sense. Even though, like, yeah, the thing, the things in culture that are purely like norms, right? And these things are social construct, like, for example, sitting at a table, or for example, um, the way um, you eat with your hands, or if you eat with cutlery, um, whether you share food or you don't share food, all these things are normative, and you can't really criticize them, even though they have no, like, you know, actual basis for them. It doesn't really matter the difference what you're doing. Um, so I think, obviously, my last question of this entire podcast would be, what does a decolonized education look like to you? And you can also, in that same breath, sort of make your closing remarks, and then we can close off for tonight. Okay, so um, I think for me, I'm going to be really short. I'm going to try to be short. Um, it looks, um, it basically is reimagining education and what that means for us and um and reimagining our societies and what kind of job markets that we have and then equipping people with the skills the relevant skills to be able to help and boost the country and its economy not just teaching people 
clothing and textiles and you know home economics if that's not relevant in today's world then i think we should do away with the you know generic um education obviously there are some basic skills that everybody needs to learn so it's just you know looking at the things that are working now and those that aren't working and filling in the gaps with what we have had before in the past and how we can make sure that our African indigenous knowledge isn't erased. Um, we're equipping people with skills and we're not, you know, making certain professions seem more likely or better than others. So if we can see that, say, for Lesotho, agriculture looks like it's the future, then we must now invest in more farmers and people in that sector rather than continuing to work with engineers and doctors even though we can see that we have a surplus of it you know i think decolonizing education is seeing whether or not the education system that we're providing right now is actually helping the country and you know the the bits that we inherited from um colonialism and whether or not that they're, they're working they're actually not working you know adjusting that to make sure that our countries are able to move forward. So, you know, teaching the relevant things, if we can see that democracy isn't working for us, teaching the relevant governing systems or different governing systems that we can later on adopt and move forward together. So, yeah. Yeah, I think um, Rati, you can go ahead and then I'll finish off. Honestly, I, I feel like a long time ago, I used to be like, decolonize education. We just don't learn anything about the British. Like, that's it. But increasingly, I honestly, I, I don't know if I have a clear answer for it. But I think um, when I think about a decolonized education, I think about one where I am able to look at African like literature or African research or look at Latin American research or look at Asian research and look at everything sort of uniformly. I, um, when I, I studied in Spain for a year and one of my favorite classes was my constitutional law class because it was a comparative class. So we would look at examples from the US, examples from Asia, examples from all across the world. And that allowed me to formulate my ideas about like what I think would work here, what I think wouldn't work here. And so I think for me, a decolonized education is one that allows for multiple worldviews, like multiple worldviews. And it allows us to sort of respect and understand that nothing is not important or nothing is not relevant. Um, the paper I spoke about earlier by Karen Smith, she talks about how Western in like western knowledge can't understand or explain things in africa a lot of the time it's just question mark and so i think for me an important thing would be just allowing like allowing myself and allowing institutions to teach us more than um Kantism and um who's this um Descartes um. You know, like, yeah, <laughs> not only that, but it's not only about, but like broadening our worldview in terms of language. So what does Portuguese philosophy say? What does Nigerian philosophy say? Just having a much broader understanding about the world, because I feel like the more I've indulged or engaged with African authors, I'm like, but you people are speaking facts like these things make sense, you know, um, but I think obviously um, I think you had said our last remarks is, I think a challenge, I think to all of us, even listening to this is to think about how am I going to participate in the decolonization of education? Does it mean I'm going to write papers on African content? Like it may be difficult, the information may not be there, but that's how we participate. Like, um, yeah, I think, yeah, just essentially, how do we participate in decolonizing education not just um and i think obviously that requires us to be willing to want to produce material but to also want to read different things you know i decided some time back i was like i'm going to learn portuguese because there could be a lot of like golden things you know not only like portuguese philosophy from portugal but like that opens me up to know things about brazil and things about angola and how does that shape my understanding of the world? So, yeah. 
I totally agree with you guys. And I think my two cents will probably be just, I want us to sort of fight back against the bias that we have developed um, against anything that comes from the continent, even when it comes to, for example, things like research grants. In South Africa, there are more white, although white scientists, although, sorry, although black scientists or like black researchers um, in general have gotten more money in total as black researchers, right? White people on average per person get more for their research. These, these identities and these things are very much prevalent. At the same time, I would love to look at, I think for me, I think an answer to the world's issues in a post-colonial era is to globalize education. I think it is equally important to learn about, obviously, as pre-colonial African history, obviously the great civilizations that we had, and we did have great civilizations, how, for example, the higher people were making iron or actually steel, right? A very high, uh, like, you know, good quality steel up to 2,000 years ago. Um, and how I learn about, for example, how Africans had stone sort of calendars, like Adam calendar, Napta Playa, and the Namuratunga, you know, all these different things. Like, people don't really know about all of these knowledge systems. I think that will actually reflect in terms of how people actually view the continent and just as Africans in general. So if you teach them, for example, Africa had a golden age in the middle, medieval period, people will actually be like, yeah, you know what, I can actually do it. That's the sort of stuff that I'm kind of looking for. And also a bit of an emphasis more on like African languages, because I'm afraid that a lot of tribal languages are going to start dying. We've already started seeing this, even like, for example, um, you'll have one generation that can speak Ikuyu, and then the next generation won't be able to speak Ikuyu. And it's only in the rural areas that you'll actually speak these languages. So I think it's just, it's such a huge project. Even I don't quite know what it looks like, but I think it's obviously something that we can begin to unpack. My advice to anyone that is listening to this is to question all these presuppositions that you have been taught through a colonial education. What I told you, for example, about cutlery, question these things, right? Question these things like how, for example, you treat each other, even the idea of like, let's say handshakes, all this different stuff. Like what are the crossroads between that and um, our cultures? What is from our cultures? What is imported, et cetera? And um, generally speaking, I would say know thyself and know thy history. And without further ado, thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, I really appreciate your input. And I believe we'll have to close the podcast here. Next week, we'll be talking a bit more about African identity and we'll get a few guests on here as well. Thank you so much to everyone who's listened. Have a wonderful evening and see you.